Welcome to Pursue Ministries. You're listening to Men's Fraternity, Session 5, Overly Bonded with Mother Wound Part 2. The speaker is Bill Howard. All right, guys. Uh, here's what we're going to do. Uh, as promised, I told you that as we're going through the overly bonded with mother wound that occurs when dad is not there or if he's there, he's passive, then what happens is mom jumps in. And she kind of takes over, and, uh, and if maybe you're a traditional American family where the dad leaves at, you know, 7, 8 in the morning and then come home till 5, 6, 7 at night, then if nothing else, dad's just not on the premises much. Uh, the average father spends 37 uh, seconds of interpersonal time with the child per day. 37 seconds, and that's if he's there, okay? So pretty much boys then grow up in the world of women because most of his time spent with mom. Mom's the one that engages most in the domestic areas of life and giving direction and uh, attention and so forth and affirmation. And then if he goes to church, usually Sunday school teachers are women and grade school, high school, a lot of times teachers are women. Nothing wrong with women, guys. It's just that there's the absence of men. And we talked about that, that that affects us. And it affects the way we look at life because the lens now that we begin to look at life is a feminine set of lens, which again, there's nothing wrong with that if you're a woman. But there is something wrong with that if you're a guy and you're looking at life like a woman. You may be very masculine. But you're seeing that. So we'll talk a little bit more about that as we unpack that. And I know we've talked about that before. But what happens then is this overly bonded with mother, it may not even be necessarily your mom indirectly. It's just the concept that you've learned to act, think, and react more like a woman than a man. And so, uh, but in particular, what we want to do now is we talked about that there is a separation that needs to occur. One occurs at birth, another occurs later on. Uh, Jeremy just had a new son, what, a week or so ago? Coming days. Yeah, you were at the, in the birthing room and he cut the umbilical cord and, and I jokingly told him, I said, well, I symbolically cut the umbilical cord at the birth of my four boys to remind me that I'm gonna have to do it again about 13 or 14. Because that umbilical cord's cut physically at birth, but but little little boys are mom's boys, right? And that just happens. But so there's got to be a time when that little boy becomes a man, and that's where dad is really plays a part because it's our uh, leadership that gives direction to boys to let them know that now the responsibility is born upon you to act like a man, and here's what that looks like, and that's got to happen around 12, 13, 14. If you're Jewish, they had the bar mitzvah, okay? So I want you to see here then, guys, how then did the perfect man relate to his mother? Mary is a very elevated person in the Bible. She must have been an amazing woman. She was the mother of Jesus. She bore, literally, the Son of God. But I want you to see here, guys, that Jesus also had a relationship with his father. And the father of Jesus was not Joseph. It was God. So I want you to see here how Mary and Jesus interact and how Jesus uh, is going to, around 12, 13, and even after that, how Mary's going to try to interweave her life into Jesus' life, but how Jesus keeps taking a scissors. And in the scissors, we're going to learn a little bit later on today, that cuts the umbilical cord that's invisible, which is this attachment to mom. The scissors is your word. It's your word. Okay, that's what cuts it. And I want you to see how Jesus does this, okay? So take your Bibles, guys, and let's look at... Luke chapter 2, verse 41 through 49. So if you got Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, then John, 
the third in the order of the gospel writers. So take a look at Luke. And in this story, uh, Jesus is about 12 years old. Okay? Luke chapter 2, verse 41. Okay? So Jesus is about uh, 12 years old. And let me just read the story, then I'll kind of unpack it as we go along. Okay? Verse 41. Says here, and his parents used to go to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became twelve, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending a full number of days, the boy, Jesus, stayed behind in Jerusalem, and his parents were unaware of it. Now, first of all, guys, it's interesting that God wants us to know Jesus was twelve. And he's going to insert the story, and I believe, guys, it's for a reason for us. And so why is this in here? Why is Jesus 12 years old, this story is being recorded, and they were at the Feast of the Passover, and after a certain number of days, uh, the parents leave, and Jesus stays behind. Okay, now let's pick it up here some more. Verse 44. But, but the parents, Mary and Joseph, supposed Jesus to be in the caravan. And they went a day's journey and they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem. Now you can imagine this, guys. You know, around 11, 12, you know, it's like boys ought to be, they ought to know better, right? They ought to know what to do. And you're not always looking around the corner like they are when they're four and five because, you know, at four and five they can die. 11 and 12, they could die too, but they ought to know better. <laughs> and all of a sudden, about a day on the journey, and there's other people with them, you can kind of see this. Mary goes, hey, Joseph, have you seen Jesus? I haven't seen him lately. And Joseph's going, you know what? I haven't seen that boy either. Where is he? And they start asking people in the caravan. Everybody's going, I hadn't seen him either. Now you can imagine, here's what's going on. Dang it. We got to go back and get that boy. Because somehow we left him behind. How come he's not in the caravan? I guarantee you that's what's going on. Because you'll see what's happening here. Okay? So they got to turn around. Now guys, listen. It's a caravan. They didn't have cars back then. They're a day away. Now you can imagine they're going... Dang, I got to go back a whole day just to find that boy. Okay? So, watch this. Not only did they go back a day, they get in Jerusalem, and it came about that after three days, so they're roaming about Jerusalem now three days, so whatever plans they had have been abandoned because of their pursuit of a lost son. Watch this. And then they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard Jesus, this boy, were amazed at his understanding and his, and his answers. And when they saw him, in other words, when mom and dad saw Jesus, they were astonished. Now, here's the deal, meaning they're really not happy campers. And, and I'll watch, because watch this phrase. And notice, by the way, guys, who speaks? Not Joseph here, who speaks? Oh, mom. And his mother said to him, son, now watch who she's speaking on behalf of. You're, uh, why have you treated us this way? You see that? It's not like, wow, we're so glad we found you. They're like, why have you done this? You selfish guy and you screwed up our life the last four days and, and we had to turn around we've been looking for you why are you treating us this way with such disrespect and then she says this behold notice who she's speaking for your father and I have been anxiously looking for you notice Joseph's not speaking Mary's speaking so the first thing we want to notice here is that she's a pretty strong woman Okay, Joseph may have been the head of that household, but 
She was the neck that turned the head, right? It's a pretty strong woman. Now, I want this is what I want you to see. Jesus is going to respond now to his mom, and I want you to see how he does it at 12 years old. Watch this. And Jesus then said to them, Why is it, Mom, that you're looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be where? In my father's house. Whoa. Now listen, if anybody knew what was going on, it was Mary. And he basically said, Mary, you ought to know it's about this time in my life that I need to shift from you to dad, to my father. And I need to be about his business. And I need to be following a course that he's setting for me. Mom, you should know that. You see that? All of a sudden, he took out his scissors and kind of went clip. Okay? So let's fast forward now. Let's go to John chapter 2. And it's about 18 years later. Jesus now is around 30. And interestingly, his mom, somehow Joseph falls off the scene. Perhaps he may have passed away. But 18 years later, Mary is still around, very much around, very much present, and very much still wanting to attach an umbilical cord to her son. And I want you to see how she tries to do it here now that he's 30 and he's now totally about his dad's business because this is when he embarks upon the ministry for the next three years that the father sent him to accomplish, which is his work to die for us, okay? So, verse, chapter 2, John chapter 2, verse 1. It says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited and his disciples to the wedding. And when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, Okay, this is what's important. They have no wine. Now, listen, she's been bumping around with him now for 30 years, and she knows who he is and what he's capable of. So it's like this. She observes the situation. <coughs> Jesus, hey, honey, listen, they don't have any wine. You take care of that. <laughs> she's telling him what to do. Watch how he responds here. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. Now, by the way, it's not like, woman. <laughs> it's, it's a very honorable term, but it's still, again, his word becomes his scissors. Mom, listen. You don't need to be involved in what my father has called me to do. This is between me and him, not you and me. Basically, stay out of my business. You see that? And so watch what happens here. Verse 5. And then his mother said, whatever he says, do it. It's interesting, isn't it? Okay, let's, let's uh, go a little bit further forward. So go to Matthew uh, chapter 12. Matthew 12, verse 46. Okay, Matthew 12, 46 through 50. And now Jesus is smack dab in the middle of his ministry. He's become very popular. He's a spiritual rock star. Everybody wants to be around him. And he has a lot of people that want to know and hang out with him. And one of them is going to be his mom. And so he's probably speaking, and there's a great group of people now, a huge audience listening to him. And so here's what happens, verse 46. While he was still speaking to the multitudes. Notice, while he was still speaking. In other words, he wasn't done speaking. He was speaking. And while speaking, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Okay? So Jesus is doing his work, speaking. Mary's out hanging around on the peripheral of the audience. But she got something she wants him to know. And so she needs his attention. So look, look what happens. Verse 47. And someone said to him, 
Behold, your mother and brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. Now, you got to get this scenario, guys. Jesus is speaking. Somebody comes up. Could have been Peter. So Mary, think about this. Mary grabs Peter. Hey, Peter, listen. Would you go tell Jesus I need to talk to him? Right in the middle of him speaking. So Jesus is speaking. All of a sudden, you can hear, you can see Peter kind of walking up to the podium and going, Jesus, your mom wants to talk to you. That's what's going on. So see, she's a pretty strong woman, right? So watch what Jesus does again. And stretching out his hand, Jesus toward his disciples said this, Behold, my brothers and my mother. For whoever does the will of my father, who is in heaven, he is my brother, sister, and mother. In other words, he's saying, Mom, listen. All of you listen. You need to be about my father's work too. If you need to connect to me, the best way to do that is to come under obedience to my father. Because that's what I'm about is his business. Does that make sense? You see, he cuts it again. All I wanted you to see here, guys, is how many times his mother... And for some reason, and I think it's for this reason, the scripture records these incidences because I really do believe it's helping mothers learn to let go of their sons and it's helping sons to learn to, by their word, cut this invisible umbilical cord. Because they need to be about their mission. And see, we'll learn, guys, one of the ways to begin to break this bond that's overly bonded with mother is you've got to establish your own masculine boundaries. In other words, you've got to know why you're on the planet. Because if not, mom's going to feel really good. Now, let's one more passage. At the end of Jesus' life, okay, in John chapter 19, John 19, Jesus is being crucified. He's on the cross. <clears throat> He has suffered greatly. He's been whipped, tortured, beaten. A uh, crown of thorns stuck on his head. They've been giving him vinegar, basically, to drink. I mean, it's, he, he's not doing well. And notice here, verse 25 of John 19. It says, therefore, the soldiers did these things, all these horrific things to Jesus. But there were standing by the cross of Jesus, guess who? His mom and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene and one guy, only one guy left. You know who that was? It was John. Out of all the 12 men who were hanging around Jesus, only one guy hung in there at the cross and that was John. And so now you can imagine Mary is going, your father led you to this? You've been telling me all along that you're wanting to be about your father's business. And listen, if anybody ought to be taking you off of there, maybe it's the father, but I'm here for you, honey. I'm here. Now, you would think maybe Jesus, in all of his pain and agony, could have said, Mom, thank you so much for being here. I'm really thirsty. Could you go get me a drink? Could you do something to help me here? Could you go talk to the guys that put me up here and maybe manage some kind of scenario to get me down? Would you help me out here? Here's what I want you to see that he does. Watch this, verse 26. When Jesus therefore saw his mother, he didn't ask her for anything. Didn't ask her for one thing. And the disciple whom he loved, so he saw Jesus, or he saw John standing by his mom, and he said to his mother, Mom, listen, this John, that's your son now. And then he says to John, John, your mom. So what's he doing? He's just not asking for anything. He's saying, Mom, listen, 
John's going to take care of you from now on. I just want you to know that. Because I'm not here anymore, and I'm going to leave, but John's going to take care of you. You see that? That's what real men do with their moms. 30, 33 years old. They, it, they realize that the reason for them being on the planet is to care, to provide, and to protect <clears throat> women and children. And that's what Jesus is demonstrating here. Not looking to women and children to give him life, but instead seeking to give life to those whom he's been given the charge of. Okay? Pretty interesting, isn't it, guys? All right, let's talk more about this wound. Two responses to the wound. In other words, when men are overly bonded with mother, they tend to move in one of two ways. The first way is men become overly passive or feminized with regard to women. And that is that men tend to then see life out of this feminine set of lens which looks like a man would wait rather than initiate. He's looking for somebody else to lead, either his wife or mom or somebody. Somebody make the first move. I'm not going to do it. Uh, he shuns risk-taking because he doesn't want to disappoint anybody. He struggles in making decisions because he doesn't want to offend anybody. He wants group consensus. Is everybody okay here? Uh, he places high emphasis on his feelings. And he can, be, he can be controlled how a woman feels about him. That's a feminized man. That's a passive man. And here's what's also interesting, men. In, in general, these men tend to marry a woman much like their mom, which is more of a dominant woman. Because these men tend to marry stronger women. And unfortunately, that's not a recipe for a good marriage. It becomes a recipe for disaster. Because all of a sudden, the one thing the woman needs from that man is love. But see, he's unable to give it because he's looking for her to love him. See, it's a reversal of roles. And therefore, when he is waiting for her to initiate, waiting for her to lead, waiting for her to love him, then she loses respect, which is the very thing he needs as a man. And when he knows she doesn't respect him, he doesn't want to love her. And then you have this vicious cycle of war right there in the home. But it starts because the guy doesn't understand what he's supposed to do and be. Now, if you want to see, guys, if you got your Bibles again, uh, I'm going to show you probably the clearest picture in the Bible of a feminized man, okay? 1 Kings chapter 21. It's a guy named Ahab, and he's married. Anybody know who he's married to? Who? Jezebel. Jezebel. If you've never heard of the term Jezebel, uh, that's not synonymous with a godly woman in the Bible. In other words, if somebody says to you, wow, your wife's a Jezebel, that's not a good thing. <laughs> okay? And so here's what's happening, guys. Verse 21, chapter 21, 1 Kings 21. It's right uh, before 1 and 2 Samuel. And verse 1, chapter 21. It says, now it came about after these things that Naboth... The Jezreelite had a vineyard which was in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. So Naboth has a, has a piece of property right next to the king's property. Okay? Right next to it. And so here's what happens. Verse 2. So Ahab then speaks to Naboth saying, Hey, listen, Naboth, can we make a deal here? I tell you what, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it's close beside my house. And I'll give you a better vineyard than, in its, than, than this one in its place if you like. And I'll give it to you in the price of money. Okay? Well, here's the deal, guys. Uh, in the land of Israel, 
the land that was given to you was an inheritance and it was illegal, it was wrong for you to give away your inheritance to anybody because Israel had tribes and you were born of the tribe of Benjamin or, or whatever. And so everybody had their own land distributed to them. And so it was unlawful. It would have been unlawful for Naboth to give Ahab this land and sell it for money. If he, if he had of, he would have been a man of no principle. But what you're going to find here is you've got a man who's passionate, Ahab, very oriented to what he feels, but he's not principally driven. And so he asked a very stupid question. And so I want you to see how a principled man, a real man, is going to respond to a feminized man. Watch this. So Naboth said to Ahab, you know what? The Lord forbid me that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. I'm sorry. Ahab, you should have known better not to even ask me the question. Now watch what happens to Ahab. Okay, here's the feminized man. Watch his response, guys. So Ahab came into his house, sullen and vexed. <laughs> because of the word which Naboth, the real man, spoke to him, for he said, I will not give you an inheritance of my father. So in other words, he basically readjusted a man who was just a passionate man wanting whatever he wanted to get, who was living outside the box, and he came into contact with a real man, a principled man, who put him in his place and said, listen, king, you should know better to have even asked me the dang question, no. So he's not happy with this because he didn't get his way. And look what happens here, guys. And he laid down on his bed and turned his face away and he ate no food. Are you kidding me? Because he didn't get what he wanted. Now he's just one unhappy camper. Like a little boy. Spoiled rotten. Now watch this. Verse 5. And Jezebel, or but Jezebel, and listen, that's a big but right here that comes into the picture. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, How is it that your spirit is so sullen and vexed that you're not eating any food, honey? What's, what happened? What's wrong with you? Verse 6. So he said to her, Mommy, yeah, it actually didn't say that, but I'm inserting that. He said to her, honey, listen. Because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, give me your vineyard for money or else. If it pleases you, I'll give you money in its place or another one. But then he said to me, I'm not going to give you that vineyard. <clears throat> so Jezebel's wife said, watch this. He, she said to him, do you not reign over Israel, wimp? You're the king. And you're going to let this little Naboth guy boss you around and tell you what to do? Arise. Watch, watch this. Arise. Eat bread and let your heart be joyful, honey. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth. Wow. Wow. Ultimate feminized man right here. You talk about role reversal. Okay. So look what happens. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and sent letters to the elders and to the nobles who were living in, with Naboth in his city. And now she wrote in the letters saying, proclaim a fast and seat Naboth at the head of the people and seat two worthless men before him and let them testify against him. There's lie about Naboth and saying, you curse God and the king and then take him out and kill him. And that's exactly what happens. So the way Jezebel takes care of it is she literally kills Naboth and takes his land. So it goes on here. And I just want you to know that the Father, God, is not happy with this scenario. 
Verse 23, here's how uh, Elijah, who God is a prophet, and, uh, and prophets, guys, were conduits for the voice of God. And so Elijah is speaking on behalf of God, and here's what he says. He said, And of Jezebel also has the Lord spoken, saying, The dogs shall eat Jezebel in the district of Jezreel. And the one belonging to Ahab, who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And the one who dies in the field, the birds of the heaven shall eat. Now surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because his wife, Jezebel, incited him. You see, guys, if you go back in the Bible, in the beginning of time, there were two people. There was a husband and a wife, Adam and Eve. And Eve is the one who listened to the voice of the serpent. Adam, while that was occurring, you know what he was doing? He was right there, by the way, and he did nothing. He was passive, watching his wife being accosted by a serpent, following under a trap where he invited her to say, hey, listen, I want you to know, lady, that your husband and God has one over on you. But I'll tell you what, if you do what I'm asking you to do, you'll be equal with God and your husband. Because I want you to know that I sense in you, and you probably sense, that this is not a fair deal. And the woman said, you know what? You're right. And then she gave to her husband. And uh, Eve then incited her husband and said, hey, honey, listen, this is what we need to do. We need to take a bite of this. And I'm just going, okay, honey, whatever you say. Then what happens is God then comes to the man first because it was his responsibility. And then God judges this man, Adam, and he judges him in two, two ways. The first thing he said, hey, Adam, listen, because you listened to the voice of your wife and ate from the tree what I asked you not to. So in other words, guys, Adam got in trouble because he was a bench sitter. He was a wiffle ball. He was an Ahab. Ahab is nothing more than someone who is Adam magnified. Married to a strong woman who wanted to take over. Do you see that? And so one of the ways this wound manifests itself is, guys, is it, it affects men where they become passive and irresponsible. The second way that affects men is they become overly dominant or hostile to women. And that is that women become a threat to them. Now, this is where spousal abuse comes in. And when a wife asserts her way and her opinion in any way to a man who's wounded here, uh, this man will explode. He'll feel threatened by her. And he'll go into a rage and he will control her and his family by anger. Now guys, this is somewhat of how I can tend to relate to my wife and children. Remember I told you, I'm a recovering feminized man. And so my response more is, okay, uh, I want to lead, but she's strong too. And so how do you relate to this? And one of the ways is a man who's overly bonded with a mother will feel threatened by that and react in anger rather than love. Okay? Okay, point four. Let's give some suggestions then, guys, for healing this wound. Uh, a few things we can do. First thing, guys, is what we have to do is it starts or begins in healing this. It begins with a personal masculine focus. In other words, you and I have to know what we're about, and that's what is our Father called us to do. Why are you on the planet? What has God called you to do? Uh, my experience is when I sit down and talk with guys, one of the biggest issues men face in their lifetime is why am I here? 
A lot of times I find if you ask a guy, do you enjoy what you're doing? Oh, it's okay. Are you doing what you really, ah, oh, not really. Not really. Well, what do you want to do? And sometimes it may be something quite different than what he's doing. And then the bigger question is, what does God want you to do? Okay? So it starts there where uh, Jesus, by the way, in Luke 2, you understood at 12, he said, I have to be about my father's business. So you find the clarity that he had in his life to tell his mom, Mom, here's what I'm about. You see that? Clearly understood there's something he had to be about. And so a lot of guys, when they bring their head up for air after being sucked under by the current of their career, generally speaking, guys discover life is bigger than their job. It happens usually around mid to late 30s. And a guy starts going, there's got to there's be something else than just work. And so he starts asking this question. Who am I? What am I to be about? Where am I going? How is this all going to end? And guys go into this sort of search. And they start asking now the right questions. They should have been asking it early on, like at 12 or 13. But they just drift along because mom's always there for them. They never have to struggle, be responsible. Everybody's been taken care of and they're little boys. Then usually around 30 or mid-30s, that's when all of a sudden they go, whoa, i got to figure this thing out. But now they've spent a lot of their life doing something, perhaps they're not sure if it's why they're on the planet in the first place. Uh, C.S. Lewis said, he who plans for this life but fails to plan for the next is a hero for the moment but a fool forever. Because the decision a man has to make in his life is, You've got to know what harbor you're headed for so you can set your sails to get there. And that's what's going to give you direction. And so here's the thing, guys. What kind of man, bigger question is, what kind of man does Jesus Christ want you and me to be? Because the answer to that question will give you direction. I remember I was a, a sophomore and I was playing football in my high school. And uh, played as a freshman, and this is a sophomore, and you know, you're trying to compete, and you'd like to play varsity, and, and I'm all of 5'8", 135 pounds. And I'm out there, and I'm playing free safety, and uh, we're in full pad scrimmages, and this is, you know, where you're, you're full contact. And it's really where the coach is deciding who's going to hit or be hit. That's really what you're looking at. And I remember... Uh, the line splits apart, and here comes Chris Reed. He was a senior. He was the fullback. He was about 6'1", 200 pounds, coming, running at me full steam. The only thing between him and the end zone was me. And all of a sudden, and all I knew is, you know what? I'm going to break now. And Chris Reed hits me really hard. And the only thing I remember was his belt buckle raking over my face, man. <laughs> Watching him run to the end zone. And listening to everybody go, whoa! <laughs> and it wasn't because of the way I hit him. It's the way he hit me. And so, man, I got off the ground and um, there were things said about my masculinity that were pretty offensive. <laughs> I remember standing on the sideline thinking to myself, you know what? This does not feel very good. I do not like this feeling. So I told this guy, it was a friend of mine, I said, listen, if he does this again, I'm going I'm to hit him. So I'm not kidding you. I get back out there, almost the same scenario. Line opens up, here comes Chris Reed. Here's what I learned, guys. The first thing I learned is you can't just stand there. <laughs> That ain't gonna work, okay? Passivity does not work. It doesn't feel good, it hurts. So I took off, I took, and I hit Chris as hard as I could. And I'm telling you, it hurt. But guess what? He went down, and I went down. And all of a sudden I heard this roar. It was my coach, Coach Johnson. Woo! Woo! I 
it's like, like I hardly had stars in my head, you know. <laughs> and they come running out on the field. And Coach Johnson doesn't grab Chris Reed. He grabs me. And he grabs my shoulder and he literally picks me off the ground. Starts shaking me. He goes, that's a hit! That's a hit! You're the man! That's what I want to see in the football field! And all of a sudden, he's like, yeah. That's exactly right. And here's what I learned, guys. I remember going, okay, okay, okay. I got this. Because when you play football, it's about hitting somebody. And listen, if nothing else, just hit a guy standing around. You'll be <laughs> right And so the thing is, guys, is it feels good, doesn't it? Ah, God, it feels good when you do what men ought to do. But because it has impact, right? And people see that. Your wife will feel that. Your kids will feel that. Your friends will feel that. And they'll go, wow, that guy's a man. Because principled men aren't looking for group consensus. Because they're living in the audience of one with a personal masculine focus. And they know why they're on the planet. And if you don't agree with them, that's okay. But I hear tell you, what's going to happen is other people are going to look at you going, you're the man. And it's going to feel right. Okay? So, guys, that's where it starts. So here's the deal. If nothing else, to clarify while you're on the planet, nothing else, when you get up in the morning and you're despondent, if nothing else, you'll still at least know what you got to do. <laughs> you'll, you'll at least know, I got to get up and I got to go do this, whatever God's called you to do. Second thing, guys, is don't waste time, point B, don't waste time struggling, arguing, or fighting with mom if it's a problem. Okay, don't waste time struggling, arguing, or fighting with mom if it's a problem. And so if you're married, the reason why the Bible says this, and if you got married, you probably heard this at your ceremony, but it was for this cause, for this cause, a man must leave his father and mother. And the article is particular there in the book of Genesis. For this cause, a man, it doesn't say the woman, and it's not mankind, it's the guy. Because the guy is the head of the home. He's the leader. If the leader's lost, everybody's lost. You see that, guys? For this, what cause? For the cause of God's work on planet Earth, directing a man to come alongside and grab a woman so that he can follow this master on a mission with his mate to live out his purpose on planet Earth. Right? And so, guys, it's an important thing. So what you do then to leave is part of it, guys, not only understanding why you're on the planet, what your masculine focus is, but then you've got to establish clear masculine boundaries in your life where you and your wife come to the conclusion of what it is that you're about and how you want to raise your kids and where you want to raise your kids and what you're going to do for a living and who you're going to relate to. And by the way, mom and dad are on the periphery and they need to be invited into your world. They're not going to control your world because your life now is defined. You've got your own mission statement. And mom and dad need to fit into that because they've had theirs, but you need to leave theirs and now develop yours. And that means theirs aren't yours. They need to clearly respect your masculine boundaries. And so uh, let me just give you an illustration. Uh, there's a guy who 
was in our group uh, a number of years ago, a guy that was a friend of mine named Matt McMurray, and Matt wouldn't be ashamed to have told his story many times, and he, if he were here, he'd tell you this, but Matt was a guy, he was in the men's fraternity, uh, he was married, he was uh, smoking some things he ought not to have been smoking that make him feel pretty good. Uh, he was married, uh, they had one child, and his wife was in the process of getting her master's degree as a uh, physician's assistant. And consequently, in getting her education, they were going in, I think it was $30,000 a year that she was spending to get her uh, degree. The thing is, is that his work was in and out. He was selling insurance, but he wasn't making much money. They were living in a house who was owned by his mother and who was paying uh, the rent to make sure that they made it every month. And the mother was very dominant. She, uh, they were going to a school that the mother was providing for these children to attend. So here was this wife now married to a guy who wasn't really providing, who the reason why she was getting a degree was really to make sure that somebody had something to do clearly that could provide for the family. And the house that they were living in was not even their house. It was really their mom's house. And the mom, who was basically telling now her husband what to do and where to take the kids to school. You see that? I'll never forget. Uh, we were kind of working this out, and Matt was at my kitchen table, and his wife was there because their marriage was moving into isolation. And so I was unpacking their life scenario. And then I said, Matt, and oh, I, I looked at his wife, Gigi, and I said, hey, Gigi, I, I got a question. Are you working, I mean, are you getting your degree, honestly, are you getting your degree because at some point you're preparing for living life without this guy? Oh, she started bawling. And she said, yes. I don't want to leave him, but you know what? I can't trust him. I can't depend upon him. It, 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 he just can't make it happen. I'm going to have to make it happen. You see that? And so Matt's sitting there, and he's watching her and listening, and I go, Matt, how does that make you feel? How does that make you feel? I said, man, if nothing else, I would be saying, I've got to grab this woman and take care of her and my son. And I'll guarantee you the last thing she wanted to do is get pregnant and have another child. Okay, so here's what happens. Matt grabs hold of this stuff. He spends some time with God. He said, Matt, you got to figure out why you're on the planet. And he began to wrestle through this. And he got some clarity. And then I said, here's, here's what, bro. You're going to have to establish some clear masculine boundaries around your wife and children and your family. And that means you're going to have to tell your mom, who's very strong and dominant, stay out. And so he did. And he actually went to their house and... Um, he had some books and materials, and he written out a plan. <laughs> and uh, he said, Mom, I want to talk to you. And, and uh, so he's walking in. She says, what do you want to talk about? He says, well, I want to talk about how you relate to us. And all of a sudden, she goes, honey. And Dad comes into the picture. So Matt sits down with his mom and dad and basically redefines how their relationship's going to look from this point on. They were going to move out of the house. No longer were they going to receive income from her. Uh, the school, uh, the, the direction that she was trying to give the kids as a grandmother, the only way she could talk then now to Gigi, Matt's wife, was that she had to call Matt first. She couldn't just call Gigi and tell Gigi what to do. She had to go through Matt and so on. You see that? He just established some boundaries. And uh, then and he walked out of that meeting, and all of a sudden it's like, okay. While he was walking in the car, his dad, who was a physician, but very passive, married to a very dominant woman, he said, I'll never forget, my dad put my, his arm around me and said, son, I'm really proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> See, he's a man. And I'm telling you, by the way, they've got three kids now. Uh, they ended up going to Honduras and running an orphanage for about five years. 
But that's what men can do when they grab hold of their responsibilities, guys. Thirdly here, point C, get support and encouragement from, from other men about your plan and implementation. You don't have to do this alone. Hebrews 10.24 said, let us consider how to love and stimulate one another, love and good deeds. And the word stimulate there in Hebrews 10.24 means to irritate. Let us consider how to irritate each other so that we can do the right stuff. Because listen, a good friend will tick you off. A good friend will tell you the truth, not because it's what you want to hear, it's because what you need to hear. And so here's the thing, guys. Uh, you, can't, you, you, you don't have to do this alone. Get some guys around you that can help you move through this to make decisions in life that will benefit you and not hurt you. And it's gonna t it may take some time. Okay, if you're married and your wife sees that there is a overly bonded connection that you have with your parents, if you're married, here's what you do, guys. Tell your wife that you recognize your mom's over-intrusion and that you're going to take responsibility for it. Let me tell you, if you go to your wife, it's amazing. I've seen this happen so many times. Because here's all you got to do, guys. If, if you wonder if there's a problem, just go talk to your wife. Say, hey, honey, listen. Is my parents, my mom, my dad, my parents, do you feel like they're an intrusion to us? That's all you got to ask. And, and just by the fact that you say that, if it's a problem, your wife will go, yes. I mean, listen, I just want you to know. And maybe you can talk about this. And then you say this. Hey, honey, listen. I'm going to take care of that. Listen, your wife will go. Well, it'll give her goosebumps. And she, all of a sudden, she'll feel, because she'll want to cleave to you. Because you're left. And she'll want to cleave to you. Because she'll go, you're the man. This is us. And then, um, point E. Ask your wife's support in prayer but not to get involved. She's not going to Jezebel it for you. She's not going to take care of it for you. This is something you're going to have to do. Okay? Guys, uh, just a couple more points here. Uh, this call to go into uh, your own manhood, this call needs to be direct and personal. It's between you and your son. Secondly, this call needs to be specific. Three things you can particularly do. First, uh, this call needs to include a transcendent cause uh, that goes beyond self. A cause that's to declare what a man is to be and to live for. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, if I find nothing in this world that satisfies. By the way, the older you get, is that not true? It's like, okay, I got the car, I got the house, I got my wife, I got my kids. Been there, done that. And you find, really, there's really not a lot that ultimately satisfies. And so he said, if you find nothing in this world that satisfies, then perhaps, he said, I'm made for another world. Perhaps that's the signal to say that there's something bigger, more transcendent, beyond me that I'm created to find life in and through. And namely, guys, that's a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And you come to a place in your life where you realize, you know what? Uh, this dot represents time. The line represents eternity. Temporal, eternal. Uh, this line, if you can imagine, just unending. Eternity is without end. Time with, there is no time. It's without end. It's existence without any time. Time is only the beginning of it and the end of it. And the Bible teaches that God created and he began time. And then when man interrupted that, he caused death. Man chose death and created an end of the line and created a dot. And so now you have the end of the beginning of time and the end of time because man now will die. So what you realize, though, that God created man to not just die and, and quit existing. The Bible teaches that all men will live 
forever. And the question is, where? Either heaven or hell. Both are in the presence of God. One in the grace, mercy, and love of God. The other in the wrath of God. I'm just telling you what the Bible teaches. And so everybody's going to go beyond the, the dot to the line. Two questions a guy's got to ask. Where am I going? And then secondly, uh, if I am going here, then is there something in the dot that I can invest my time in that impacts the line? In other words, can I have an eternal perspective? Not just a time perspective. You know, there's a mentor of mine named Howard Hendricks who once said, a lot of people live like they're in the land of the living, going to the land of the dying. But guys, listen, when this one cause, God namely, comes into your life and you have this relationship with him, what you realize then is, you know what? I'm in the land of the dying. This is all ending. Going to the land of the living. See, I'm, I'm not going to die. I'm going to die to live again. And so then you got to ask yourself, is there anything that, that goes from the dot to the line? And you know what it is, guys? It's only one thing. It's people. That's it, according to the Bible. People last forever. Last forever. So, a man then, this cause, this transcendent cause, has to include an involvement with people. How am I going to impact people? Namely, my wife and my children, and then beyond that, my friends, and then if anything, beyond that. And impact them for who? You see, when Jesus Christ came into the world, he came to do the will, not his will, but the will of him who sent him. Cause broader than him. Okay? And then number two, this, this, call, this specific call needs to include a masculine vision that goes beyond success to significance. That describes what a, a real man is. And this masculine vision will give the definition of manhood so that a boy can become a man. P.G. Woodhouse once said this, Boyhood, like measles, is one of those complaints which a man should catch young and have done with it. For when it comes in middle life, it's apt to be serious. It's pretty interesting, isn't it? And so this vision helps a boy decide who's going to be and where he's going to go. You know, in our family, I've got four boys, and part of the, the masculine vision around our family is to be a Howard means you tell the truth, you're kind to other people, you respect elders, you honor women, and you seek rec reconciliation when you've wronged somebody. Or you forgive if you've been wronged. And at least in our family, those are some things that we stand for, and if you bear the name Howard, hopefully... The characteristics of who you are as a Howard boy becoming a man will reflect some of those things that is the vision for our life. And then thirdly, guys, the code of conduct is something that we need to also impart to a son. And that's that this conduct demonstrates how a real man lives. That builds honorable convictions for a boy. It's what takes a boy from the potential of being a wiffle ball to a baseball. Because this code of conduct allows a boy to possess conviction, not just opinion. Because conviction, guys, will move you with power through life to help you make decisions. And it will, by the way, uh, bother other people who are opinion-oriented. Because people who are conviction-oriented disrupt those who just live by opinion. Because opinion people have their feet firmly planted in midair. People of conviction are rooted and grounded. 
And so here's the thing, guys. Is it, is it right or wrong to have sex with a girl before or after marriage? Um, is it okay to cheat at work or is it just business? Is life inside a woman really life or is it just a blob of tissue? If a man is to lead in marriage, is, it, is, it, is he really to lead or is it marriage democratic? In other words, what do you believe? What do you believe about stuff? And are you conveying that to your children to help them come to their own convictions? Who is Jesus? Is he God in flesh or is he just a prophet? Who is he? You've got to decide. Okay? All right. Lastly, guys, uh, this call includes ceremonies. It involves ceremonies. And, uh, you know, when you graduate, you get a diploma. You get married, you get a ring. You get, become a Christian, you get baptized. And you become a man. If you're Jewish, you go through a bar mitzvah. But in America, <laughs> ah, I don't know. When do I become a man? You see that? So the call needs to be direct and personal, specific, and involves ceremonies. So your son goes, okay, this is the day. Ceremonially, I've been dubbed a man. So that he can distinct, distinctly remember a time. You know what? This was the day. 